0: For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. You are
1: a person who comes from people, from land with names, who had particular struggles because of the policies passed on that land by people who were creating public flows of life to benefit them. If you were to root yourselves in who you really are, then you would rediscover your humanity, your frailness, your fleshliness, the reality that God does not ask you to be perfect never in the scripture are you asked to be perfect. God is perfect. Only God is perfect. God asks you to love. God calls us to be reconnected, deeply and radically reconnected. The call of life is to be reconnected and whiteness as a construct inherently by design disconnects.
0: This is for the life of the world a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Seldom do we think of the study of history as a journey of self-discovery. And if that claim has any truth, I wonder if it's because we modern people tend to see ourselves as autonomous, independent, untethered, unaffected by our biological and cultural genealogies. But there's a story in our DNA, and it didn't start with us. And Lisa Sharon Harper has been on a decades-long journey of self-discovery, piecing together her family's lineage from their arrival on America's shores, via slave boats, through the twists and turns of slavery and indentured servitude, through America's post-Civil War attempt at reconstruction, down into the shadowy valley of Jim Crow and 20th century civil rights struggle, all to her life in the present. Her book is Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and how to repair it all. I recently spoke with Lisa at length about how race broke her world and how she traced her family line back beyond the founding of America. For more information about her book, check the show notes and visit lisasharonharper.com for more resources on reconnecting to our history and seeking restorative racial justice. And in celebration of Juneteenth, and the black joy which has transcended centuries of oppression, the black history that deserves to be named and known, and the black freedom which is real and yet still not fully realized and repaired. Thanks for listening today, friends. Lisa, thanks so much for joining me on For the Life of the World.
1: It is so good to be here with you, Evan. Um, Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be talking with you and your audience.
0: Thanks so much. You've really done, I think, a remarkable thing with your new book, Fortune. Not many people have, I think, so intimately reconstructed their genealogy and family tree to the detail and familiarity that you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what that feels like.
1: Well, I'll tell you, it literally feels like a monument that's been built for the next generations. I was most invested in passing this on to my nieces and nephews, yeah. to the next generations of our family so that mm-hmm. they would know who they are. But also I was invested because I wanted to know who I am. Like, who are these people who made me who I am, who came before me? But what I found in the midst of that research is that their lives were so amazingly connected with policies that were passed in their time, that I began to understand America better, as I understood myself better, as I understood my ancestors and their lives better. So I said, this is not just for my own descendants and family. It feels like a story that needs to be told for everyone, because I think that as we begin to understand how policies and structures and laws have shaped the course of our families' lives, we can reconcile the narratives mm-hmm. that are warring with each other in America and come to a, a closer understanding of what is true about who we are and how we got here. And as a result, get a common vision for what it will take to make us um, flourish as a nation and mm-hmm. as a people.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that it's tempting to call this a project, but really it's more like a calling the way mm-hmm. that i understand it and the way that you've told the story in the book having spent just decades 30 plus years of your life mm-hmm. that's a calling that's not just a little tiny project
1: mm-hmm.
0: so i do want to press in a little bit more about the ways in which and maybe the theological or spiritual ways that you understand family history as connecting to both political social realities in america as well as a theological understanding of how Christians can understand the way that a family history bears on them and bears on the world,
1: well, I think it's funny. I never really understood the power of family history in scripture until I had done my own family history and understood the power of the context within which people live, yeah so. I used to look at the list of names that Jesus came from. Jesus is, you know, son of Mary, son of of boom, so it's depending on who you're reading. And and this is and this is his lineage. Or when you start the book of Luke, right, in the days of King Herod, or you start the book of Nehemiah in the days of King Uzziah. The time, the context. Matters because yeah. there's a political context, a mm-hmm. social context, mm-hmm. a, a cultural context, and a spiritual context. When we're reading the scripture, we tend to focus on, and I'm I'm saying, especially in the evangelical world, we tend to focus on the spiritual context. Like, what are the spiritual lessons that somebody else taught before? Okay, they apply now. Okay, how do we how do we read them into the text right now? But we totally miss yeah. the political, the cultural the social context. Mm. And as a result, I think we actually missed the meaning because this whole book, the entire book is written in the context of oppression. The entire Mm. book is written by people who were colonized in the midst of them being colonized or fearing colonization. And it's those people who then made a point of writing down the generations So that that has to mean something. And it means something to our faith. What I've come to understand is that in the context of our faith, when we look at Jesus's lineage, for example, Mm -hmm. when Matthew gives us his lineage or others give us his lineage, what we're looking at is we're looking at the context within which he was born. And each generation actually had its own struggles, had its own triumphs. Um,
0: Yeah. So... I mean, you say in the book that context is text. Yes. That's really what yes. I'm hearing in what you're saying right now. And that, that leads also into the sort of complexity. So you also say, we don't like shades of gray, nuance, complexity, In submission to our culture's dualistic narratives. We have cast our nation's foundational stories as if they were sketched by Disney or John Wayne.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And... That is real.
0: It is real. And I want to dive into a little bit more about how context is text and how that, how history inflects our own individual experience and our own individual existence and our Mm -hmm. search for personal meaning, flourishing, community life.
1: When we look at the context of American life, you cannot divorce it from the laws that were crafted to shape the flow of American life. And I mean, American as in even going back to the colonial period before we were America, because those laws actually mostly stayed in place, actually, when we became a nation. Yeah, we got a constitution. Eventually, Mm -hmm. we had the Bill of Rights and all that. But the basic laws were all still there. And we know that because slavery still existed. They transferred from domains. Mm -hmm. So from colonial times to post-revolution times. But those laws shaped the course of life and those yeah. laws are our context. And mm-hmm. those laws were created in order to deal with a perceived problem in the context of the ground. This became clear to me when I was researching. Fortune was the very first American born. In other words, person born on this land mm-hmm. within my family that we have been able to trace her name is Fortune Game McGee. And so Fortune was born in 1687 to Maudlin McGee and Sambo Game. Sambo was from Senegal, we believe, the southeastern corner where Mali and Guinea mm. and Senegal meet. Mm. He, We know the ship that he came over on. He came over on a ship in, that he was brought over in chains in 1686. Yeah. And we know he was from Senegal because that's a Senegalese name. It's a Wolof name. Hmm. And it means second son. Hmm. Isn't that deep? That's so deep.
0: That you know that about these individual human beings that are tied to you by blood. I mean, this is what I was talking about. Most people do not have that kind of level of depth of connection to their ancestry.
1: Well, I know it from a series of revelations in the midst of the research. The first one was realizing that there's this brilliant man who has researched all of um, the free black um, men and women and families Hmm. in Virginia, Maryland. South Carolina, North Carolina, and Delaware. Wow. And so he's made it his life work, actually, to to trace them, to research them. He's done most of the work. Exactly. When we realized that my family was connected to this Fortune family through DNA research yeah. with the Ancestry.com, that there were too many connections, still the connection, um, needs to be narrowed in, but we know there's a family cluster there. We're not exactly yeah. sure exactly which ancestor, right. but we know there's a family cluster and they're connected. So here's the thing. When I realized that Fortune, born of Sambo and Maudlin, and the reason we know that is because of court records, mm. because she was a mixed race girl, yeah. because Maudlin was from Ireland. She was actually Ulster Scott. And that means that she was Scottish, helping to plant plantations on Irish land in, in Ireland. Mm. For the English. She was there as an indentured servant. She fell in love with Sambo, had an affair, and they had fortune. Mm -hmm. When I realized that she lived in that time and it was the laws that were passed just 20 something years before she was born that shaped the course of her life, I went, Whoa, the law is personal. Mm -hmm. It's not just this philosophical thing that's out there. It impacts the course of not only. Fortune, but also Sarah and Humphrey and every generation that came after that. Thomas, yeah. going down to Robert, going down to Philip, going down to Ella, and and so on through my family line to me. So the fact that in 1664, Maryland, the planter class, who was also the legislators, generally speaking, mm. got freaked out by the fact that they now had these mixed race children coming from the unions of white women and enslaved Black men. Mm. These white women were marrying enslaved Black men and they were like, we can't have that. And so they instituted a law and that law said any white woman who marries and has children by an enslaved Black man shall herself become enslaved to her husband's master and her children will be enslaved in perpetuity. And then through a bunch of finagling over the next 20-some mm. years. That changed because they realized people were starting to actually force their indentured Irish servants to marry and have children by enslaved Black men so that they would gain free labor. So then they changed that law, but eventually it basically shook out to what impacted fortune, which was a law that said, if, if you are the product, the child of a white woman or trace your lineage back to a white woman, you cannot be enslaved, but you can be indentured. Hmm. And if your father is is of African descent, black, then you will be indentured for 31 years. And if hmm. your father is white, you'll be indentured for 21 years. Wow. And so there you see it in the first set yep. of race laws. You see the privilege of whiteness. You also yep. see gender. These are the first laws that actually impacted gender. Mm -hmm. And you see the creation of a racial caste system that Isabella Wilkerson talks about in her book, In America. Mm -hmm. And that was 1662 and 1664, 62 in Virginia, 64 in Maryland. So that's the context. And that is text. That context, that legal context shapes the flow of life. For fortune and three generations of her progeny who go on and are indentured, not enslaved, because her mother was white. Mm-hmm. But on Leah's line, who is, I think, chapter three in the book, mm. Leah is enslaved in South Carolina and her mother, as I know from AfricanAncestry.com DNA, her mother traces back to Nigeria. So her mother was black. And by that point, she was born in the early 1800s. By that mm. point, it was very solidly the status of the mother is what gives you the status of the child in terms of slave or free, citizen or not citizen. And so her mother was black, so therefore she was enslaved. And by that point, that was the clear law, and certainly in South Carolina. So her context shaped her reality and the end all her descendants, which were enslaved until the end of the Civil War.
0: What's amazing about this is um, when you compare it to the modern sensibility of autonomy and mm-hmm. the individual that is sort of freestanding and disconnected. And I, and I believe this is a lie that we are freestanding.
1: That's a lie. That,
0: that yeah. we are autonomous or pure individual. Got to be a lie. I mean, it's a sort of biological lie, of course, <laughs> yes. at some deep level. Literally, yeah. But it's also this spiritual and moral lie in the sense that there's this, and, and I think it's probably idolatry at the at the bottom of it. It's something like, the pride of life that emerges to try to convince us that we are our own and that we have made this world for ourselves. But the story that you have written down here and passed on Mm
1: -hmm.
0: is proof to the contrary. And it's proof that we are intimately connected with our past, intimately connected with each other, and that laws really do have an impact on individual human lives and can constrain or free.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, one great example of that are the laws that were passed after the civil war that you had a good seven, well, nine years of real freedom Of reconstruction, where people were reconstructing the South. That's where that word reconstruction comes from. And where you had the Civil Rights Act of 1866 passed and you had voting rights protected and all of this. And that's why within nine years, you had more than a thousand, I think some people say 2,000 people of African descent were elected into positions in American Mm -hmm. governance as far top as senators and Mm -hmm. House representatives, and even lieutenant governors, Mm -hmm. mayors. I mean, you just had uh, Black elected officials all over the country, not even only in the South, but all over the country. And here you have, in nine years, you have then the policy deal of 1877, the Harding Compromise, Mm -hmm. and that compromise then lifted federal protection from the South and then threw the South into Jim Crow law. So into the the hands of basically um, post-Civil War slaveocracy, Mm -hmm. where they Mm -hmm. then leveraged the loophole in the 13th Amendment in order to people their plantations that had gone for nine years being unpeopled because people left. But they said, okay, we're going to people them again. We're going to force workers onto them through the loophole, imprisoning them. They lowered the bar of criminality. All of these things happened. And in my family, what we see is the laws that are passed in that time. Immediately, as soon as Reconstruction is over, laws are passed in South Carolina that ban people of African descent from working in any position that is not domestic or farm. Hmm. So basically, the only way that you can work in South Carolina is to do what you did during slave times. Wow. Is to work in the house and then also to work in the fields. So it's those things that actually then pushed black people to say, we out of here. And Mm -hmm. my family was among them. We said, we're out. You know, that's what made the great migration. So these decisions that were made in terms of policy really did shape the flow of life. And as Mm -hmm. a result, the the futures and fortunes of my family and millions of, of families across America. Yeah. And not only black folk, also white folk. So for example, the institution of the Homestead Act. Mm -hmm. So when there is in the mid 1800s, there's a recession going on in Washington, D.C. and on the East Coast. So what do they do? They open up the West and they say, come and all you need to do is do a big run and plant your flag and you get to have that land. Yeah. Well, who got to benefit from that? White men got to benefit from that. Very, very few people of African descent got to benefit from it. Hmm. And even if they did, most of the time, their land was taken from them within a few generations. And so you have a situation where the laws, the policies are not only shaping life for the oppressed, but also, and most especially, particularly for white men. Absolutely. For the benefit of white men.
0: Hmm. Deeply connected to this issue is is a quote, again, from the book, law is rarely, if ever, crafted in response to philosophical belief. That's an idealized kind of thing. And you go on, law is crafted to deal with real-time issues rising from common life in a society. And important to the context there is that it's not just real-time issues in common life, it's the real-time issue is the maintenance of power. Yes. It's the maintenance of these laws that are oppressive to one community, but deeply benefit the other. And yet, and it's part of the lie, it's part of the the social lie, the, the lie we tell ourselves, maybe it's, whether it's mass delusion, whether it actually occurs to the individuals and who it benefits, that's a question. However, speak to what you've learned about how these laws impacted the white communities that benefited Mm -hmm. from this kind of oppressive legal force?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that we have to really stop and ask a pretty profound question. When was the last time in the history of the world when people of European descent as a people did not go somewhere in the world anywhere in the world, and imagine they should be the rulers there?
0: That is the question.
1: Isn't that the question? That question came to me about a year and a half ago, Hmm. and I was blown away by the reality that I couldn't trace a time. And then I had to, when I did, I had this like, aha moment. It's before the Greek empire. Hmm. You have to go back before the Greek empire. So that's like 3,000 years. Yeah. You have to go back before the Greek empire in order to find the moment when people of European descent did not assume that they should be the ones to rule the world. And that assumption has been passed down to us through Greek philosophers like Aristotle and and others, but especially I I name Aristotle because he Mm -hmm explicitly said it in his book, Politics on Politics. Yeah. He actually said, if a people group has been conquered, it has demonstrated that it was created to be enslaved. Hmm. And so it's that logic that then led yeah. Pope Nicholas V to declare, not the Bible, it was Aristotle who was wow. undergirding Pope Nicholas V's um, doctrine discovery, um, Romanus pontifex, when he said, and wherever you go in the land o oh, explorers and you find uncivilized and christian people you get to claim the land for the throne and enslave its people mm. he was looking at it and saying if you go somewhere we are the civilized ones we are the ones because that was the way that the greeks understood If you're going to be fully human, you got to be European, you got to be white, you got to be male, and you have to be able-bodied. So if you see people who are not white male or able-bodied, they are not civilized, and they're certainly not Christian, so you get to enslave them. Hmm. That was the logic, and it came from Aristotle, Hmm. not the Bible. Because on the first page of the Bible, we actually see very clearly all humanity is created in the image of God and called and created with the capacity to exercise dominion in the world, to exercise stewardship of the world, agency to shape the world. Mm. So it is that lie that has been passed down from generation to generation for 3,000 years. Yeah. You know, maybe a really great illustration of this for people my age who are Gen Xers, might be Pleasantville. It's like, you know, sure. you're, or Truman Show, yep. like you're in this alternative universe, or maybe it's the matrix. It's this alternative universe where you see the world set up in a way that, you flow. Like you just flow and you think everybody else flows because the oppression that is required for you to flow is hidden from you. And the reality of this constructs of the laws, the the process of making those laws, the decision-making within the halls of government has been hidden. So it's just assumed this is the way life should be. For 200 years, we assumed Slavery should just be. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. It took people of faith, actually, who had a vision given to them by brown people who were colonized in the scripture of this beloved community of the kingdom of God, who said, it's not supposed to be this way, and then went against Mm -hmm. the flow, the inertia of our world that is set up by the laws and structures and the flow that we determine as a political society to say, no. So it's when those first people have always said no, whether it was the abolitionists who said no to slavery or the women, black women, especially beginning with black women and then moving to white women who said no to lack of suffrage and then. To black men, women and children who said no to Jim Crow and then to LGBTQ community who said no to being treated as second class citizens. And the same with the disabled community and the same with Native Americans and the immigrant community now. Whenever anybody stands up and says no, they are saying no, not just to the law, but to the lie that undergirds the law. They're saying li- no to that. Hmm. And so, what's the impact that it has had on the white soul? It reinforces the lie. The laws reinforce the lie of the supremacy of whiteness. But if you get outside of that matrix, if you get outside of yeah. the Truman Show, if you get outside <laughs> of Pleasantville, yeah. you begin to understand people of European descent are simply human beings. Just simply human beings. That's right who themselves have been oppressed, quite honestly, had a huge, ravenous history of oppression on European soil and have taken that way of being wherever they have gone in the world. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. As my friend Andre Henry says famously, that's what gives me hope, is that as people of faith, I understand repentance is possible like Mm -hmm. turning and walking another direction. But normally we think of repentance in the personal, like, oh, I did somebody wrong, so now I need to repent of that. But what would it look like for a society to repent? Hmm. What would it look like for the church to repent of the assumptions we've had about who we are and how we should operate as the church?
0: I really feel like I just need to ask, how does that repair... Occur? How does that kind of reconciliation at a societal level begin to take shape in in real life? And, And I think it is tied to very much the methodology of your book here, which is sharing in personal history and using that history to personalize the other and start telling the truth.
1: Yeah. Start telling the truth. Quite honestly, for people of European descent, start telling the truth about how you got here. Hmm. Start telling the truth about who you are. So many of my white friends have responded to, you know, the question of DNA or whether they should do family research with the thing that I don't know, maybe it's something that's passed down to y'all or taught to you, but to say, I'm just a European mutt. There's nothing there. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that research. But that is not true. Um, You are a person who comes from people, who came from land with names, who had particular struggles because of the policies passed on that land by people who were creating public flows of life to benefit them. And that's, by and large, that's the reason why almost every person of European descent came to America, is to escape that. So, but what happened is once y'all got here, you created a new way of crafting a class of nobility, a noble class, and you made it white. Yeah. White meant noble, Mm. white meant homeowner. White meant landowner. Whereas in, in Europe, it was the serfs and the nobles. You had different class, names right. for it in different domains, but that's basically what it was. Well, the serfs and the nobles became the landowner class and the slave. And the white folk who were in between were told you're closer to the noble than you are to the slave because you're white. So just stick with us and we'll we got you. And that's the benefit of whiteness. But what would happen? What would happen if people of European descent in America were actually to see themselves not to renounce whiteness, to reject that moniker that actually erases their history, Mm -hmm. erases their family, demands that they renounce their origin story and simply root their origin in the reality that they have some level of power, because that's all whiteness is really for, is to determine mm. who has power. Mm-hmm. So what would it look like for people who have been deemed white yeah. to say, no, who I actually am is I am one who has benefited from this cover called whiteness. But my ancestors were Lithuanian. Mm-hmm. My ancestors were German. Yeah. And this is their story. This is how they came to the American soil. Who my ancestors were was Swedish, who my ancestors were British. And they came here in this way. We're Quaker. We're There's all kinds of stories, usually involving famine or oppression that got people here. Mm. And I think my gut tells me if people of European descent were able to root themselves in that, as opposed to whiteness, which is just, ghost. It doesn't really right. exist. It's,
0: it's just a construct. It's
1: ethereal. If it's a construct, if you were to root yourselves in who you really are, then you would rediscover your humanity, your frailness, your fleshliness, the reality that God does not ask you to be perfect. Never in the scripture are you asked to be perfect. God is perfect. Only God is perfect. God asks you to love God calls us to be reconnected, deeply and radically reconnected. The call of life is to be reconnected and whiteness as a construct inherently by design disconnects.
0: I think you're I think it's spot on. It really connects with my own experience of really not receiving a lot of my own family history and I think I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for my own context. And I suppose I would go out a little bit on a limb to say that I think this is probably common. And I think it's part of that white construct, which is creating a safe harbor for white children to grow up disconnected, as you say, disconnected from the fact that others suffering is what makes their safety.
1: Which is exactly why they're attacking critical race theory right now in the 1619 project, because it's all, it's uncovering the yeah. reality that this is all constructed and they have to, they have to keep that hidden in order to continue in a world where whiteness is assumed to be supreme. Yeah. You've got to keep the lie going.
0: Yeah. And I think it's always justified by this desire to protect that the mm-hmm. the prior generation wants to protect the younger generation from that psychic pain that mm-hmm. honestly that melancholy i use the term melancholy along the lines of j cameron carter in describing that's the kind of feeling of a white individual who mm-hmm. has been harbored from the pain of her black sister
1: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
0: has been sheltered. And yet, and I should say his black sister, really, because it's so Mm -hmm. deeply connected to the white male. That's right. And Mm -hmm. coming to terms with that psychic pain, that Mm -hmm. whether it's anxiety Mm -hmm. or depression, or just the slight suggestion that something's off at an existential Mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. It's that constant assumption that we will be protected, that we we will Mm -hmm. be harbored from any of the bad feelings or bad thoughts that might wow, haunt us from bad repercussions. past or the repercussions that would come, of course. And so there's really an important connection to the ways in which we understand the way we encounter like th- the kinds of truth that hurts when the truth really hurts, Yeah, but must still be yeah. said, must be admitted. And then you need to bear those repercussions, bear the consequences of the truth and not just continue to live in the falsehoods.
1: That's exactly right. In fact, the first two chapters, first not chapters, first two parts of the book trace that family story in order to uncover the choices that were made politically and socially that shaped their lives. And then the last part of the book um, goes into three essays on what repair will require. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter of that repair section is on truth telling. Yep. And how we have to do three things. We have to truth-seek, we have to truth-listen, and we have to truth-tell. And that truth-seeking and truth-listening time, that is the painful time for people of European descent. And it's the first step. The very first step is to seek the truth, or at least to allow the truth when it comes to you. You can't listen if you're not open to it. Right, right. So, but, oh, on the other side. (laughs) On the other side of that, you get to exhale. Yeah. You get to be simply human yep. and not try to strive to be God, which I think is actually the principal sin of people of European descent. I think so. It's an it's idolatry. to try Absolutely. to be God. Yeah. It's to try to shape the world, to try to actually define the world to be the determiner of what the world is and who everybody is in it in order to control the world. That is somebody who's trying to be God, not somebody who's trying to be even even a supreme human. No, you're trying to be the supreme God. And that is when you are at war with God. The real question is, it's not not like, can white people get to that place? The, The real question is, what benefit will people of European descent get when they lay down their arms against God, hmm. they will get to be simply human and they will get to be cared for by God, not mm-hmm. striving and cared for by themselves, which yeah. only brings domination. You can only get that through domination. And when you dominate then you have to continue to dominate in order to maintain that power. So the only way for people of European descent to find true peace is to lay down your arms and trust God to be God.
0: It's beautiful. Needed. It's so, we need to hear that so much.
1: I want to say one last thing. Yeah. Yeah what repair will require is reparation and it will be costly indeed but again that's where actual faith kicks in like that's what faith that's where we are required to yeah. actually have yeah. and exercise faith mm. you know david had this moment i believe it was second samuel i always get that wrong um it's, it's in the book. (laughs) It's, it's this moment where the Gibeonites come to David and say, you know, King David, you know, Saul tried to kill all of us, tried to commit a genocide against us. And it's funny because David had been just wrestling with God saying, why do we have this famine in the land? And then there's a knock on the door and they tell him, and he's like, oh, that's why we have a famine on the land. And he could have done a few different things there. He could have said, oh, wow. I'm so sorry that he did that. But you know, that really wasn't my reign. So, you know, deal with it. You know, he could have done that, which is exactly what we've done as Americans to people of African descent. He could have been better. And he could have said, Oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to fix this. I'm going to get my council together. We'll figure it out and we'll fix it. He didn't even do that. What he did was he fixed the actual break. Hmm. He went back to core. The actual break was the moment that Saul looked at the Gibeonites and did not see the image of God in them, did not see the inherent divine dignity and call Hmm. that God had placed on their lives to exercise dominion on their land. That God, God had said, the Gibeonites are my people. The Gibeonites are people I created To rule here on this land at this time in this place, they should be able to determine how they live and when they die, Mm. as opposed to being killed by war. Mm. But no, Saul said, no, I'm going to be God in this moment. I say they don't deserve to live and I'm going to commit genocide. So what did David do? David, his process of repair started with the acknowledgement of them as full human beings created in God's image, created and called to exercise dominion. He gave them dominion over the remedy. Yeah. He said, what do you say we should do for you so that things may be well with you? Yeah. And they told him, and it was costly. They had already had their council meeting. They were ready. Sure. And he did it hmm. without asking a question. He just did it. And how did God respond? God lifted the famine. Hmm. That's how we know God was good with that. God lifted the famine. Yeah. So what would it look like? What would it look like for people of European descent to listen and pay attention to the the recommendations for the healing of people who've been oppressed impacted peoples. And especially for me, the people of African descent for whom there has never been reparations. And it's the only people group who has been oppressed on American soil that has never received federal Mm. reparations, Mm. never. So what does it look like then for, what does repentance look like? It looks like turning and listening to the Black Manifesto written in the 1970s. It looks like turning and reading and taking in and listening to and following the vision of the movement for Black Lives. It looks like passage of H.R. 40, the House Resolution 40, that is calling for a commission to study, not even the actual check, but a commission to study what reparations, what repair would would require. And it looks like passing the TRHT, the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission Act that was put forward by Barbara Lee last year, that is Mm -hmm. simply asking for a truth commission to see what happened and then to see how do we fix it? So that is what repair will require for people of African descent. And that's what repair will require for people of European descent, because that is, if we do that, Mm -hmm. it will start the process of people of European descent claiming their mere humanity.
0: That's beautiful. I just have one more question for you. So as you've done this work, looked at your family history, connected it to your life today. And as you think about the kind of theological and moral frame for the kind of flourishing that is implied by the kind of repair that you're talking about, mm-hmm. what's the difference between mere survival or going with that, that unjust flow and true flourishing? What's the difference there? Mm.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Wow. Wow. And it's a stark difference, especially given our actual context right now, Mm -hmm. because I think you can't have this conversation in a bottle because we don't exist in a bottle, in a Petri dish. We exist in a context. And in our actual context right now, if America, if our nation, our context, if we follow in the footsteps of the ones who've come before and we simply do as they've done and we do not course correct immediately then what we will do is we will literally give up our democracy. Not only will it be black people or brown people, gay people, immigrants that Hmm. that lose the ability to vote, it will be white women. It will be poor or even middle-class white men Mm -hmm. because the inertia of the laws and the structures since the very beginning to right now to the last presidency, the last administration has been to protect through law, the planter class, the ruling class, the noble class that that comes over from Europe, that, that idea, the concept of nobility, but the ones who have always gotten short shrift is everybody else. But right now we are at an existential moment in our nation where it's not even just that you know, the middle class is shrinking and we have more people on the bottom, more people are going to be poor. Yes, that'll be true. Mm. But we are about to lose our civic rights, our civil rights. White people are going to lose their civil rights. White women are losing their civil rights, their right to protect their own bodies, White men who are poor, elderly white people, and everybody else are losing the right to vote as gerrymandering happens, as ID laws are instituted, as they shut down polling stations. And so white elderly people who need special help to get there won't be able to travel 30 miles, 40 miles to go vote on a particular day. So when we lose democracy, we actually, quite honestly, we lose the great experiment. We lose the capacity for all people on this land to exercise agency, dominion, stewardship, to be fully human. And that is when we have actually seeded the ground. We've actually said, if we continue on this road, we're continuing in the direction that has been sh- placed for us from the very beginning, hmm. we would then solidify for generations, that the only people who really can flourish on this land are white rich men who claim to be Christian. Hmm. But if we choose the way of God, if we choose the way of the kingdom, of God. Hmm. In other words, that we are all brothers and sisters because God is our father. God is our mother. God is our parent. If we choose the way of the beloved community where love flows, in all directions and all people are prepared to exercise stewardship of the world through their education and their housing and their job capacity. Mm -hmm. And also the way we pay each other, the way that we say, thank you for the work that has been done. If we go the road of the beloved community, then what we do is we set up we first will have to go back and we're going to have to transform this society. We're going to have to go under the hood of the car, in other words, yeah. and retinker, rework this car and how the engine runs. Mm-hmm. And who are the assumed beneficiaries? No longer will it be the few, it'll be the all, the many. And all should have and will have a say in that. But the only way to get there, the only way to get there is through repentance, mm-hmm. is to repent for the ways that the church has engaged with the vote that the church has engaged. The people of the church have engaged with the civic duty within a democracy Mm -hmm. to vote because it is that civic duty, that vote that shapes our world. Mm -hmm. That vote gets people into office who will then create laws that either benefit those few or benefit the many. Mm -hmm. And we, the church, People who claim Christian faith, who say that they walk with brown Jesus, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we make up the majority of voters in America.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So if we, just us, were to actually repent of our politics, of the way that we have through our conversations and votes shaped the way that the people live together. Mm -hmm. If we were to repent of that and to begin to re or not rebuild, to build the beloved community. We could get there.
0: Yeah,
1: We could get there. We really could. We could get there within one generation. We could get there within the next 23 years. Mm-hmm. Because that's the point, 23 years from now, when we will have a majority people of color in the nation. Wow. And if we do not have the white church fighting to maintain that bit of power that they had under false pretense, but rather if we have the church people of European descent who call themselves Christians fighting rather for the beloved community, we could get there.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for writing this text that shows how context is text in your real life and giving that not just to your descendants, but to the world. I think it's this beautiful example of the ways in which, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, we're made by history and what you've given all of us is a gift. And thank you for your leadership in this area.
1: Thank you, Evan. Appreciate you and appreciate your audience. Thank you.
0: is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured Lisa Sharon Harper, production assistance by Annie Trowbridge and Luke Stringer. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. Special thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper and Katie Zimmerman at freedomroad.us. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, sometimes midweek. If you're new to the show, welcome, friend. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app, and we'd love your feedback ratings and reviews in apple podcasts are particularly helpful but we're just as happy to hear from you by email at faith at yale.edu we read each comment and do our best to respond and improve the show bringing you the people and topics that you want to hear and if you're a regular listener it's a huge honor that you stick with us from week to week so i'll ask you to step up and join us help us share the show behind those three dots in your podcast app. There's an option to share this episode by text or email or social media. If you took a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world, not only would you be supporting the show, you'd be sparking up a great conversation around stuff that matters with people that matter. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week.